Well, today we are starting our brand new series on Genesis chapter 12. If you were here uh, a year ago, you would have known that we uh, made our way in this term from January to March, April through uh, Genesis chapter 1 to 11. But today we are picking up where we left off. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Genesis chapter 12? But we can actually read from verse 27 of chapter 11, as will become clear when I read in a, mem- in a moment. Today, I just want to really just lay a little bit of a foundation. My aim today is more of an introduction rather than actually getting into the meat of Genesis 12 to 25. Because actually... I believe the principle being that often, if you just sort of rush into looking at Scripture without actually taking the moments to set the context that you're about to read, you can often lose a huge amount of the impact that God wants us to have. So today I'm going to resist the temptation to do too much kind of burying down into the actual text itself. I really wanted today to take the time to set the scene so that in the next few weeks, as, we, as I preach and others preach, that we have actually been equipped, hopefully today, with tools that will allow us to get the most out of Genesis 12 to 25. So let's read then from Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and going into the beginning of chapter 12. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkar. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his wife, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Hanan, Haran, they settled there, The days of Terah were a mere 205 years, young man, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we just say you are a mighty God. You are able to save. And Lord, we just want to ask now that you would just increase your presence. Lord, on this dreary, rainy January morning, we say, Lord, let the glory of God fall in this place. Lord, we want to thank you that your word is living, it is active, it is powerful to change and shape our very lives. Lord, we just say now, come, Lord, that your word do the heavy lifting today. Let it change our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I just want to look at two key things this morning. You'll be pleased to know, not a 3.7, but a mere 2.7. First of all, what I've called the contrast. The contrast. And then secondly, what I've called the contours. So basically, I want us to set the scene. Set the scene of Genesis 12 that we've just looked at, and then to look forward at the contours, or the shape of what's to come. So what do I mean? First of all then, the contrast. And what I mean by that is this, is that when we read Genesis 12, chapter 1, and it says, and the Lord said, go, at that moment, really, there should have been a kind of, "Ah!" all across the room. 
There should have been a sharp intake of breath, of shock and staggering amazement. There should have been like a people launching themselves on the floor saying, Hallelujah, the glory and the grace and the mercy of God. I didn't see that. And the reason is, is because when we read Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, we often read it without the power of feeling the weight of the contrast of the 11 chapters that lead up to it. This is one of the problems, in fact, when you... Because we've had a year, or nine months, I guess, since we stopped Genesis, chapter 1 to 11, if you were here, you would have been part of our journey as we looked after chapter after chapter after chapter of rather depressing things happening. And so when we get to chapter 12, and these incredible promises of God, and the mercy of God breaking into Abraham's life, we should have been absolutely shocked at this moment. But we weren't. And actually, God uses the power of contrast in our everyday life all the time in order for us to access emotions. So, for example, I have a lovely wife, young Josie, two beautiful girls, Daisy and Lily. They come into every sermon. And um, and in my normal life, I have them around me most of the time, in the morning, in the evening, at weekends, all the time. It's glorious. I have access to this amazing positive thing that is my family. And it's great, and I love them, and I appreciate them. However... When I fly away for four or five days and go to somewhere called America, it's great, but there is this darkness in my life because I'm away from them. And I'm rubbish when I'm away from my family. I'm just like, you know, I'm I'm preaching and I'm enjoying it, but there's this ache. There's this phenomenal contrast in my life. Once I had them, but now I'm thinking, gosh, every other thought of mine is, well, I wonder what they're doing now. And when Josie sends little texts for about, you know, Daisy saying, oh, daddy's on a, on a plane praising Jesus. I almost burst into tears. And then when I come in the door on Monday morning, I might be exhausted, but the flood of emotions that comes over to me. You know, I'm not trying to be emotional. I am rather emotional anyway. But it's heightened. I come in and I'm, you know, I actually get nervous. When I see Josie before, I'm nervous. It's like a first date. I'm flying back on the plane thinking, is my hair okay? You know, I've got clay clothes. I've only been away for four days. But the contrast of not being with her somehow does something in me. So that when I walk through the door, I'm actually, oh, there she is. There's my beautiful love. And when I see my daughters, I'm like a, an idiot. I'm just like a lunatic launching them through the air and spinning around. And, and I'm like on overdrive because, because of the contrast of being away. When, I've, when you experience something negative, you come to appreciate remarkably the positive. And when I read those words in Genesis 12, chapter 1, and the Lord said to Abraham, go, and all that nice stuff he said, I'm going to bless you, we should have gone, wow! We should have had a Tommy Shaw returning from America type of experience. Because we should, if we'd read the first chapters, have felt the incredible contrast. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, are some of the most important verses in the entire Bible. They are like a crossroads. It's like a crossroads that look back to this chapter after chapter of depression and darkness and horrendousness. But then they look forward to this remarkable, unexpected shaft of light that comes in the form of these promises to God. And in fact, I'll say this. If we don't constantly, in fact, to some degree in every preach in the coming weeks and years, have this sense of the power of contrast between the darkness of the world and the light of God breaking in, the title, The Rescue Begins, will make no sense at all. You see, this is, I think, a hugely prophetic point for us in this nation right now. 
Because if you're a Christian here today, you may have experienced sometimes talking to people about God and you talk about, well, he came to rescue us, to save us. And the sort of blank expression on their face as, well, I, that sounds all rather nice, but I don't actually feel like I need rescuing from anything. My life is basically fine. I've had a good life. I live in a lovely country. I've got a lovely wife and a, or a husband. I've got a nice house. Da, la, 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 la. This is the point. The gospel doesn't make sense if we don't first of all start where the Bible starts, which actually is that this world is heading for disaster. Now, I don't want to be a prophet of, of doom and gloom, and you who know me will know that I'm a positive person. But today, we are going to spend a, quite a few minutes feeling the weight of the first 11 chapters, because otherwise, if we just rush on to all the blessings of God, they seem cheap. It seems like God is desperately trying to pander after us. Whereas actually when we read them in the context, the contrast between how horrendous life on planet earth was, when these words came to Abraham, we will never feel the goodness of God on our lives. And in fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous church leader from some time ago, led a huge church in America, he said these incredible words. He said in his estimation... The number one reason for the lack of joy in Christians' life is not because they don't dwell upon the goodness of God, but because they lose sight of how undeserved they were, of how unbelievably awful life is without God, of how sinful they were intrinsically, only then brings a magnification of the goodness of God. So, we're going to see some seriously sad things, okay? So, let's just recap then on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, so we can set the scene and feel the weight of the contrast. So that when we get to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 in a minute, this whole place is going to go mental with excitement. Okay, that's what's going to happen. I can just see it right now. Okay, Genesis 1 to 11 then, were, there was two little rather positive chapters at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. We summarise Genesis 1 to 11 in three L's. Anyone here remember what they were? Oh, very well done, Helen Brewer. Thatcher, rather. Thank you so much. We summarised Genesis 1 to 11 a year ago with three L's. Life, land, and love. That all that happened really came under one of those three umbrella terms. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, a little slice of great positivity, God generated all the land that is now in existence. It just says God said it and everything came into creation. He created all the universe, Pluto, Jupiter, Mars, and all the other ones. And he created planet Earth. And he created Eden, this amazing special place of privilege. He generated all the land. He also generated all the life. All the little hamsters and squirrels and badgers and everything else came into existence as he created them. And he said everything was good. It's all positive. Hurrah! But he said something was very good. And what was that? Isn't that amazing? The pinnacle of creation was mankind. You know, everything else is pretty good. But, you know, this is the first example of the taste the difference range. Mankind. We're like, we are the pinnacle. We're made in his image. Nothing else is. It's all sounding rather positive. And the third L was love. Not just that we are alive with squirrels and everything else, but that God gave us a love relationship with the God of the universe. Oh my goodness, that Adam and Eve, when it all began, were given a gift of perfect relationship with God. 
that they were created totally equal in the image of God, but with different roles. It was absolutely perfect. There was total union with God and with one another. But then we read in chapter 3, that phenomenal chapter where Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent. And all those three L's that had been generated then suffered degeneration. We looked at the degeneration of land. The fact that Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were banished from Eden. They were told to get out. As their sin had entered into this world, there was cosmic significance. The whole degeneration of land as a theme then came through when God flooded the earth. You remember that? But he saved Noah. But the rest of the earth suffered further degeneration in the form of a huge flood. And then also we see the the theme of the degeneration of land through the dispersing of the people at the Tower of Babel. We then secondly saw the degeneration of life itself. This thing called death entered at this point. Because mankind's sin, death entered this world. It says this in Romans 5.12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Because Adam and Eve sinned, the whole of humanity, the whole of humanity was introduced to this intruder called death. And then we also saw, thirdly, the degeneration of the love relationship that God had given them, both vertically between them and God, but then also horizontally between each other. In chapter 6 of, uh, of uh, Genesis, it says these awful words. It says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to the heart. Those are shocking, sobering words. The God of eternity, at this point, when he looked down, it says just before that, that the only, it said the intentions of every heart was only evil continually. The breakdown of the vertical relationship, the love relationship between Adam and Eve and God. But then we also saw the breakdown, the degeneration of the horizontal love relationship between each other. Only takes four people, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, before there's a murder on planet Earth. In the words of the great theologian Andy Chevalier, he says this, he emailed this to me, which I thought was brilliant. He says, isn't it incredible that it just takes four people to be together before there is a murder? Murder is like the second sin we read about. It's not some casual swearing or Adam stealing Eve's lunch. But full-out murder. How depraved is man? It's brilliantly put. Brilliantly put. This is the feel of planet Earth preceding Genesis 11. Sorry, preceding Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, we've read about the Tower of Babel, this monstrosity of mankind's ego gone berserk in building this thing for their own glory and their own fame. So if we were to summarise Genesis 1 to 11 then, it's basically this. is that God had made a brilliant universe. God had made a brilliant earth. He had graciously allowed us to be part of it. In fact, not just that, but the pinnacle of it. That we had absolutely mucked it up. Seriously, big time. When Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned in them. But God graciously didn't even stop it there. Through Noah, he gave us a chance. But then we read by the end of Genesis 11, already... All those who were given a second chance have already gone their own way again. And Babel is just this phenomenal image of the depravity and the evil of the world. 
We have to start where the Bible starts. That mankind without God is not intrinsically good. Tom Shaw without God is not, at my heart of hearts, a good person. The Bible says, and it's clear when we look around this world, my goodness, the world we are living in, it's horrendous. Every news thing I turn on at the moment is about some child being molested or some child being abducted or another teenager stabbing another teenager to death. It's awful. We live in a very pleasant little medieval city. But even here, there is evil abounding. And we, there by the grace of God, are utterly the same. This is where the Bible starts. I've often found myself bizarrely rehearsing, what would I say if a senior leader, or even on media or something, someone said, can you just define the gospel, Tom? Would I just focus on the good bit? Or would I actually start where the Bible starts and say, listen, the reality is this is that we're all going to face judgment one day. Me and you. And the reality is this, is outside of the grace of Jesus Christ, we are all doomed. That's where it starts. And if we don't have the courage to sensitively, humbly, with great grace, communicate this in our everyday life, then actually there's n- the gospel lacks all the power and the punch that it's going to have. The rescue plan doesn't even make sense. Does that make sense? So we must start where the Bible starts. So what I'm saying this, pick up your updates that you got on your way in, the little blue form things. Your Bible, in theory, should be about this thing. Okay? It should basically be 11 chapters. 1 to 11. God's already shown amazing grace, amazing favour. It should basically end there. But it doesn't. Oh no! If you have an ESV study Bible like me, it's a little bit bigger. Well, look at that baby. <laughs> My point is this, is if you want to really simply explain Genesis 12 to the rest of the end of the Bible, it's all about the rescue plan of God. It's so difficult. In fact, I would say it's impossible to over-exaggerate how stunning the fact that in Genesis 12 verse 1, rather than God saying, enough is enough, that was deliberately loud, enough is enough, I have shown mercy upon mercy and you have consistently acted rebelliously and wickedly. You've lived a life with no reference to me. You don't care about anyone else but only yourself, O human. No one would have blamed God if at that moment that's what would have happened and our Bibles would have been that thin. In fact, we wouldn't have had Bibles, would we? Of course, they wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here probably. But the Bible is a lot thicker. And so my point is simple. It's this is that even on the most rainy Monday morning, when you stagger out of bed and attempt to have some time with God, just the thickness of your Bible proclaims the mercy of God. The thickness of your Bible, that from Genesis 12 onwards, is relentlessly about God pursuing a rescue plan of humanity. If nothing else, the thickness of your Bible should lift your soul. Hallelujah? It's all about that. It's all about that. It's incredible. When God said these words, now the Lord said, Abraham, go from your country and I will bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. These are the most staggering words. The most staggering words when you sense the darkness of planet Earth at that moment. It's like a laser beam of hope that comes straight in, totally unsuspected. God ambushes man. Abraham is the most normal guy just hanging out, 
in the Middle East, and boom, God ambushes him. Everyone stand up, quickly, quick, quick. Everyone turn to your left. And after three, I want you to ambush the person next to you and go, you're ambushed, one, two, three, ambushed. Now turn around to the right. After three, ambush the person on your right. One, two, three, ambushed. Very good. Some of you were very physical then. Our God, our God, Jesus, triune God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, He's a God of the ambush. Did Abraham deserve this? I'll say that again. Did Abraham deserve this? Was there anything that Abraham did that meant God go, Woo! Wow! I'm going to pour out my blessing on him. It was an undeserved, unmerited, glorious ambush of heaven. And friends, I want to say this, is that God is still in the business of ambushing here today. If you know Jesus Christ here today, I say this just about every time I preach, God says this, in John 15, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but chose you. You see, this is just of profound importance. That each of us, if you're a Christian here today, you rest in the truth that your salvation was started by God, is being continued by God, and will be brought to a glorious culmination in eternity by God. Can I have a hallelujah? I know so many Christians who doubt their salvation, who think, oh, I'm not like that person over there. And God today says, is there anything in Abraham that in any way deserved the grace of God? No! He was just a normal dude hanging out and God decided in his unfathomable greatness to break in and to say, I'm going to pour blessing on you. Abraham was a sinner like everyone else. But God chooses sovereignly. Theologians call it predestination. But I call it ambushing. (laughs) God is a God of the ambush. He ambushed me 11, 12 years ago. I can't remember how old I am. 31. I, he ambushed me all those years ago. And he's, he, he's in the business of ambushing. If you're a Christian here today, receive afresh the grace of God that no power of hell, no scheme of man, no rubbish week where you end up getting angry at your workmates. Nothing. Say nothing. nothing. Turn to the person next to you and say nothing. nothing. That was my attempt at an American accent. It's a New York style. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm looting around, but it's a deadly, glorious, serious truth. And it changes everything. Because when you realise, well, wait a minute, if God ambushed me, just as he ambushed Abraham, that means that there are people in this city that God is going to ambush through you. Isn't that phenomenal? Some time ago in Vision, I said to everyone, if I was just to say to you now, hey guys, there might be some, there might be some money in this room somewhere. How would you feel about looking for that money? Not very motivated, because you think, Tom, you know, this place is pretty clean. It's very unlikely to be here. But if I said to you, I guarantee that there's five pounds under one of these seats, and the first person who finds it can keep it, how would you then feel about that search? A little more motivated. There isn't a five pounds here today. But the pl- I know, sorry. A bit skint at the moment. But the place went into pandemonium as people were searching for the five pounds. And a young man called Stephen proudly found it and kept it. And it was his. But that's a picture 
of what this doctrine does to us. Because this is the point. If we will be faithful in just following God and just communicating the gospel, we are guaranteed success. It's not a vain hope. But if you're a Christian here today, you may say, Tom, I'm rubbish at communicating the gospel. It doesn't matter. God makes us sound better than we actually are. That's the grace of God. He does it every week when I preach. It's a miracle. He's a God of such grace. And I want to say, if you're a non-Christian here today, you may have thought that you're here because you've chosen to come here. And maybe your mate invited you. And of course, at one level, that's true. But what the Bible clearly tells us is that at a secret, wonderful level, is that as a God who sets us up. He sets us up. So yes, we use our own mind and our own heart, but just as with Abraham, he sets us up. And if you're a non-Christian here today, I want to say that that, rather than freaking you out, should actually bring you into the place of amazing joy and liberation. Because God is on your case. He's pursuing you as he pursued Abraham. So, first of all then, we see here this amazing contrast. We should never be a people who lose sight of the fact that the gospel is only good news when we see it in light of the world around us. I actually believe that when we talk to people about the reality of judgment, my honest, it's actually, it sounds terribly old-fashioned. And one of those things that sounds terribly kind of old now, as Christians, we don't talk about that now. That's the kind of, you know, in the Victorian era. But actually, I think deep down in every person on planet Earth, there's something in everyone that knows that one day, they will have to give an account for their life. And friends, I want to say this. Is it, we don't have to be heavy-handed about it. But actually, when we communicate with those who don't know Jesus Christ, when we talk to those who aren't Christians, actually, remember that the Bible starts with Genesis 1-11. to It starts with the reality of where this world is heading. And we mustn't be afraid of that. We mustn't be judgmental. We must say, look, it's not a question of God judging you. It's a question of God judging all of us. Okay, so, serious point number one is that actually we need to feel the contrast, the contrast between what's come previously in Genesis 1 to 11, so that when we look at Genesis 12, we actually feel the weight of it. Because the the reality is this, is that the reason that the universe still exists is essentially because of these promises made to Abraham 4,000 years ago or thereabouts. The reason that the universe exists The reason that God's patience is continuing to be poured out is ultimately because of his promise to this man thousands of years ago. That's how important this really is. And it's amazing to think that just as creation started through one man being created, so now the rescue plan, the regeneration of that which which has been falling apart is started through one man. In Genesis 1 to 11, we've heard about Huge amounts of people over huge amounts of time. But now from Genesis 12 onwards, God lasers in, laser. He lasers in on just a few people, at one specific family. And so you say to me, well, Tom, what is this rescue plan that you keep talking about? What does it look like? What is the shape of it? What is the contours of it? Well, we're going to see in the next few weeks, I'm very excited about the next few weeks, we're going to see these huge, amazing threads being started here in Genesis that then run throughout the rest of the Bible. We're going to be touching touching upon huge things like covenant, faithfulness, the issue of faith, Andy Chevalier is going to start to really look at next week. But today, in our final few minutes, I want us to zoom right in on one massive, one 
Everest of an issue called promises. That's the first big shape that we see here in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's almost like, it's almost like, you know, when a husband and wife, when they get married, a man and woman get married and become husband and wife. It's almost like here, God is just, he's asking one thing from Abraham, go, which Andy's going to look at next week. And he says, if you just go, okay, that one movement of faith, then I'm going to bless, 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 bless. But it's just like a, a husband who's, who's at the altar just, just committing himself again and again and again to someone who doesn't deserve it in any shape or form. We see God pouring out these astonishing promises. And this is huge because, you see, so often when we think about the Christian life, we think about promises and faith. Yeah? Kind of equal. If we can just summon up the faith, then we'll get the promises. But actually... When we look at Genesis 1 to 11 and the staggering grace of God already demonstrated and then we turn here to looking forwards and the staggering promises of God for the future. When we dwell upon the hugeness of God's grace and mercy in the past and his grace and mercy stretching to the future, suddenly these promises become so staggering, his track record is so amazing and the future that he's promising is so glorious Suddenly, us having faith in this thing is just like, well, it's the easiest thing in the world. So often we make faith this kind of huge, if I can just get faith. And actually, rather than focusing on faith in itself, the, the trick with this is actually to focus on the enormity of our God, on his staggering promises for the future, his staggering track record. So, let's look at those three key promises that we see here. And they are all about the three L's. We see God promise to rescue the land. We see God promise to rescue the life. And we also see God promise to rescue the love relationship that was so awfully uh, damaged through the sin of the world. So first of all then, in verse 1, the first promise here, the first promise. So remember the context. Adam and Eve have been banished from Eden. Babel has meant that everyone has now been scattered all, all over the earth. And in this dark context, God says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. Say land. 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 To the land. Can we have the map up, please? Next slide. Okay. Thank you, Roger Eaton, for sorting this out. We can see on the right-hand side a place called Ur, which is where it all kind of began. It's where Abraham and his family were from. He's got so far, up at the top, you see a place called Haran. That's where he is at this moment. And God says, if you will continue your journey down on the left-hand side to a place called Canaan, which is sort of the area on the left around Jerusalem, north, south, and east. We, he says, if you make your journey there, I will give you a land. I will give you a land. So what he's saying here is this, is that now, obviously, you know, for the last few thousand years, there's been ongoing struggles about this specific land. And even now, it's in the news all the time. And I'm certainly not today attempting to give you Christians uh, any kind of theology of what we should think about the physical land of Israel. But what I'm saying is here, we mustn't miss the power of this moment. Is that at this moment, God has banished 
people from Eden. And God here says gloriously, I will restore that place, that land of promise. When he was saying to him, go to Canaan, I'm going to give you a land that at the moment, when he said the promise, was actually inhabited by people called Canaanites. He's saying, I will give you this land. And we see here God promising to rescue a people who would be banished from a land. And we find out again and again, this is just like a headline, but throughout scripture, again and again, particularly in Genesis, this issue of the land comes through like a heartbeat. And God paints more and more detail as it as the Bible goes on. So we'll read about it later in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13 and 17. In Psalm 105, God says to you, I will give the land of Canaan to be your portion for an inheritance. And Exodus 3 tells us that this land will be a broad place, flowing with milk and honey. Not literally, but it's using descriptive language to say, this land that God is promising is an amazing, amazing place. Abraham, if you will respond in faith, the first promise I'm giving you is this, is that I will reverse the curse that came through man's sin. I will give you, as it were, a better Eden. I will take you to an amazing place, and I will give you a land of your own. The theologian Joyce Baldwin says this, By anchoring blessing in a land, God made the promise tangible. A land has boundaries, geography, inhabitants. It has to be possessed, occupied, and fortified against attack. It needed cultivation and conservation if it was to support a population. I think he's a rapper. Indeed, every aspect of life was involved with the land. God committed himself to fulfill a program that could be measured. Okay? The blessing was not vague, it was specific. Say specific. This is really important for us, okay? Our God is a God who makes specific promises. He did 4,000 years ago, and he has never changed. I love this about our God. He gives us specific promises that can be measured. Either they were going to make it into Canaan and have victory and be in there, or not. And God's glory would be at stake. Our God makes specific promises so that when they are specifically fulfilled... He specifically gets the glory. I've had so many, I've had so many times and seen in my own life the accounts of, oh, I desperately needed exactly £237.82p. And would you believe it? Through the post came a cheque for £237.82p. We all know stories like that. Or, or when we need, to, we need to move house at an exact time and God opens up opportunities. And we need to sell our house for a certain amount and that was exactly how much it sold for. God is a God who makes specific promises. He's made specific promises over this church. We were praying them to earlier on. They're not vague or nebulous. Just as he promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, he has promised specific things to us as a church. And friends, this is powerful. That means we can, with all legitimacy, God, your word is full of specific promises. You've spoken to us prophetic promises since then, which we're going to say, Lord, bring to fruition. Bring into reality. It's so important. But this is, this is where it gets even more exciting. Because even though history tells us that several hundred years later, Israel actually moved into the land and saw the fulfillment of that which God had promised. As we read in the coming weeks, Genesis 12 onwards, every single week we must read Genesis 12 onwards with the goggles of the New Testament. Do that. The goggles of the New Testament. Some of you aren't. Please, there's a special thing that happens if you do it. There we go. Revelation comes. We must read 
Genesis 12 onwards, through the, through the lens of the New Testament, that ultimately this was never just about a bit of land in the Middle East. The way God said to Abraham about land, he was actually in his heart, yes, talking about a partial fulfillment, literally, in Israel, but he was actually always looking ahead to the total fulfillment in one person called Jesus Christ. It is not contrived to say that the entire Bible is ultimately always about one person. And if we read Genesis 12 onwards in these next few weeks, and we miss that every single chapter is ultimately pointing to one glorious person, we will miss a whole level of understanding that God wants us to see. Because when Jesus Christ came to earth, 2,000 years after this was promised, he redefined some of the last words that Jesus said as God on earth. He says, go now into all the nations. Yes, it was about land for a certain period of time for Israel, but now everything has changed. Now the, the touch of heaven is to be upon all the face of the earth. In fact, he redefined the whole thing of what a kingdom was in its very core. If you'd asked Abraham what's a kingdom, he would have been like, well, it's where you have a king and his domain, where he rules. In physical terms. You know, he would have been thinking like a Barack Obama. You know, a super duper king. Who everyone's scared of because he's the leader of the superpower of the world. But actually when Jesus came, he said, you've got it totally wrong. I could be like that because I'm God. But I'm showing you that the whole thing of the kingdom is totally different. What he actually showed us when Christ came to earth was this. Is that actually rather than thinking about physical land, he was more bothered about the land of our hearts. Put your hand on your heart. This is what Jesus' ministry was all about. The king of the universe was more bothered than anything else about this, than any area of the physical world. That Jesus, above all else, was about the land, the kingdom, the domain, the king's rule over your heart. Isn't that amazing? When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, that's great. And partly it was fulfilled in Israel's history. But actually was always looking through the, towards the true king that is Jesus Christ. Who is just as much alive today as he was 2,000 years ago. And he's here by his spirit. He's here by his spirit. And that's why as a church we will never stop being red hot passionate about issues of the heart. Issues about this land that Jesus the king now must rule. We will be as an eldership. We again say today we are ruthlessly accountable with one another because this heart was bought by the blood of Christ this was the true land that God was speaking and promising to when he spoke to Abraham isn't that amazing and as we read in these coming weeks we must always remember that Christ was always going to be the true hero even right back here in the Bible at the early starts at the beginnings of the Bible but then secondly we see a second promise come here promise of land being rescued but secondly a promise of life Again, remember the context when this promise was spoken. The intruder called death had entered the world. And now he was ruling unchallenged. But what we see here is God speaks to Abraham a promise that actually promises to destroy this and to bring a change to it. He says, I will make of you a great nation. Now, Abraham's wife was called Sarai. And as it says in the text we read earlier, she was bound. She couldn't have children. And yet God here was saying, through your marriage, I'm going to make a great nation. That's a bit weird. 
isn't it? Is God having some kind of sick joke? No. It says then in verse 7 of Genesis 12, even more explicitly, to your offspring, I will give this land. This is phenomenal. God is saying, I am going to save the world, and it's going to start through my taking that womb, and the breath of God's going to come into it, and you will have a child miraculously. That should have never happened. This curse of death that had come into the world was starting to be challenged and and, um, and rescued. And so we see, and we'll see in the coming chapters, that a boy is born called Isaac to Abraham and Sarai. Total miracle baby. Should never have existed. And he would carry on the promise. The baton will be passed to him. The promise of worldwide rescue will come to him. No pressure, mate. There you go. But then we'll see that this is like a theme. God is like, he wants us never to miss the importance of this. Because then Isaac marries someone called Rebecca. And guess what? Rebecca's barren. She can't have a child. And so this promise of worldwide rescue is threatened once again. But guess what? God comes through again and gives another miracle. Yay! Can we have a yay? Yay! And this time, someone called Jacob is born. Another miracle baby. Phew. You know, disaster averted. The promise continues. And then, let me get this right, Jacob marries Rachel. Guess what? Rachel's barren. And so God breaks in once again, reversing the curse and bringing life where there should be no life so that his promise can continue. Is this starting to get exciting? Is it starting to get exciting? Just lie to me. It's okay. It's amazing. God is like rubbing his hands and demonstrating that his promise, as with every promise, can only come to existence through a supernatural, say supernatural, a supernatural occurrence. Now this is the thing, the church in the UK in the 21st century generally gets freaked out by the supernatural. It's true. Often when anything supernatural happens, we as Christians go, what's happening? We think we want it, but then when it happens, it's terrifying. And yet God, from right at the beginning of this whole thing, says this thing is going to be a supernatural kind of thing. Okay? Logically, it could never have even happened. He's making the point again and again that he's going to rescue, rescue us from the, from the death that entered this world. But what we see again is that as we read in the coming weeks this amazing bringing of, of life where there should be no life, we must read it once again. I'm sorry, humour me, with the goggles of the New Testament. Should we do it again? The goggles of Jesus. Because as we see here, again, God fulfills his promise to all those ladies that I've mentioned. But all the time, as we read it in the coming weeks, we need to be realising that it's actually once again pointing to one ultimate hero called Jesus Christ. Because you see, the reason that Jesus was so phenomenal as God on earth, fully man and fully God, was that when he came 2,000 years ago, he didn't just do a few impressive things. The Bible tells us that when he rose from the dead, through that act, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he actually defeated death. How could God promise to Abraham to do this incredible thing? It's because in his heart, in his heart, he was already at the cross. In his heart, when he made this promise, he said, the only way it can happen is because I'm already in my heart making a provision for this to happen. How amazing is that? Our God stands above time and history. He has the eternity in his hands. The Christian God is phenomenal. He's incredible. He's the only true God. 
He's awesome. And not just that, and he says to his followers, guess what? If you follow me, you will never die. Pretty good. But then he also says, in order to follow me, you need to be born again. So you're like doubly alive and you never die. I mean, it's just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, it's awesome. And when he said to Abraham, he's fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham thousands of years earlier. That he would give him a nation that should never have existed. That could never have existed. If you're a Christian here today, it's not by logic. It's not because of us working things out. It's a supernatural work of God. That just as with, with Jacob and Isaac and Joseph, they were foreshadows. Those miraculous births were foreshadows of every single Christian that has been born again by the Spirit. They're like a foretaste of the true being born again that Jesus inaugurated when he came to planet Earth. So we see here then a promise of life being restored as well as land being restored. But finally we see here a promise of God rescuing us and bringing us into a love relationship that had fallen apart. He says these words, he says, you will be blessed and then you will be a blessing. Bit of a tongue twister. You will be blessed so that you will be a blessing. Say be blessed. blessed. So that you will be a blessing. With this we finish. It's not just that God would physically make these boys alive, Isaac and Joseph and Jacob, is that now God would restore that which was most clear, dear to his heart, that which had fallen apart when we sinned in Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and that relationship, that vertical relationship, as it were, between us and God was severed because of sin. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I mean, think about this for a moment. He says such promises like, I'm going to make your name great. It's just the irony of the Bible. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, it tells us the reason that humanity made that big impressive tower was to make a name for themselves. For themselves. It was horrible. All about their own ego and not God. And God here says, I'm going to make your name great. He he answers sin and, and unfaithfulness with staggering blessing and love and faithfulness. I mean, this is phenomenal, guys. This is just phenomenal that God would look at Abraham, a sinner like everyone else, and he would look him in the eye and say, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your descendants, and I'm going to bless millions and billions of undeserving sinners like me, Tom Shaw, for the rest of eternity. I will bless you. I am restoring the relationship that was broken down. And we see this happen in Israel history. There's times under David's rule when they enjoyed huge uh, military success, blessing. And they enjoy huge prosperity under Solomon's rule. But once again, we must read this with the lens of the New Testament because ultimately it's all pointing to one great figure called Jesus Christ who would be the ultimate bringer of blessing. Luke 4 says this, the first words of Jesus' ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim judgment on all the earth for your sin. No, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, as was sung earlier on, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Guys, the gospel is good news. It's glorious news. Christ said, he said, I have come that you would have life. The enemy, Satan, is here to just lie and kill and destroy. But I've come that you would have life and life to the full. He said, I'm the bread of life. 
When you feast of me, you'll never be hungry again. He says, for those of you who follow me, you have passed from judgment into eternal life. But this is the most incredible thing. You could read this promise to Abraham and say, well, does this mean then that God is simply turning a blind eye to all the sin of the world? How can he, how can he look at these people who have been so sinful towards him and just say, oh, bless you? Is he sweeping sin under the carpet? Friends, it only makes sense when you read it with the lens of the New Testament and you see in Jesus Christ, God himself came to earth, fully man, fully God. And at the cross, the full wrath of God was poured on him for all the sin of Abraham, all the sin of all those around, all the sin of those who have come since, all the sin of the people today, all the sin who will come. He poured it on him. Christ was made sin. All the sin of those people in this world who have molested children, who have killed people, it was all poured on Christ. The perfect Son of God. The wrath of God towards all of our sin was poured on him so that God at this moment could say to Abraham, I'm going to bless you because I'm going to pour on my son. I'm not going to turn a blind eye. I'm holy. but I will make a provision. I love you so much, Abraham. I am going to pour all of that in 2,000 years' time on my son. And so by faith, you can access this free gift of forgiveness that was the most expensive thing. It's a stacker that Christ at the cross made the provision. He made the provision so that we could be forgiven. He took the full punishment so that every sin we've ever committed or will commit can by faith be totally removed. When God sees you, you, if you're a Christian here today, your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. He sees you robed in righteousness. Mark Driscoll tells the profound story of a man and a woman who'd been married. And after 20 years of marriage, the wife confessed to her husband <coughs> that in their engagement, she'd slept with his best friend. This guy's life imploded. He ran out the door and disappeared. And she was like, this is it. I've lost him. I've lost him forever. Sometime later, he came back in. And he said, come upstairs. He told her to get undressed. And then he produced a pure white dress. And he put it on her. He said, that's how God sees you now. And so that's how I'm choosing to see you. Because God has forgiven you. He's forgiven you for every sin you've ever committed, including what you did with my best friend. Guys, this was what in the heart of God, when he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He wasn't doing it because he'd sneezed. He was doing it because he knew 2,000 years later that the blood of the cross that Jesus Christ would make a way that this could be possible. Our Bible should be 11 chapters long, but it isn't. And it is all about the outworking of this. The staggering work of Calvary. The staggering work of God on earth taking the punishment so that you and I could have it diverted. That's what propitiation is. It just means the wrath of God diverted. We get off by grace. And we access that by faith. It's awesome. But he finally finishes by saying this. We mustn't lose this. You will be blessed, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing.
guys, as we look as a church more and more at loving this city, where does our motivation come from? Does it become because Mark Driscoll last summer said, come on, you know, engage with culture. Why do we do Connect Weeks like we've done this week? I'll tell you why we do it. It's because of a promise 4,000 years ago to one man that as he received the blessing, that he would then be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing and through you all the world would come to know. That all the world would receive the touch of God. He says, I will make of you a nation. Not a family, a nation. In Hebrew, there's a specific word. When he says to him, I will make of you a nation, he's not just talking about an introspective, coherent thing. A nation, by definition, that's the Hebrew word used here, has a presence in the world. It is there to exert government, influence. Friends, when we look at the world around us, as I said earlier on, and the awful things that are happening, that's an indictment on the church. Because Jesus said to us, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. If we lose our our preserving nature, the world gets worse and worse. God wants to make us a people who are so salty, so drenched and overwhelmed with how much we've received that we are able to be the saltiest, most preserving influence in this entire city. When I was in America... After I preached in the first evening, this guy came up to me and he said, Tom, he said, I just felt God say I need to tell you this. He said, two, week, two weeks ago, my uncle was beaten to death in my hometown where I live. I love that guy so much, he said. And he, two gang guys had been waiting for him and they beat him to death. And it was a case of mistaken identity. He wasn't the guy they were after. He said, for the last two weeks, I have been fantasizing about blowing their heads off about killing them. He said, last night as you preached, he said, God just overwhelmed me with a vision of how much I have been forgiven. How much I have received as a Christian. Of how much I do not deserve at all to have free access to God. And then suddenly he said, God then gave me a picture of embracing those two men and loving them and forgiving them. I just thought I'd share that with you. This is what the gospel is about. This is it here in Genesis 12. That Genesis 12 talks about God blessing a man, not just so that he would be blessed, but that through him, out of a heart of staggering gratitude, his life wouldn't be easy. The Christian's life is not guaranteed to be easy. That guy's life with his uncle being killed is not easy. But the gospel equips you to deal with all that happens to you with the right attitude. And as we do that in our workplaces, in our universities, in our schools, in our offices, in the playgrounds, wherever God has put us, as we respond, as much as we have been blessed with being a blessing, you know what? God will change this city. And why am I so confident? Because he made that promise 4,000 years ago that through Abraham, then through us now as sons of Abraham, God will pursue those who don't know him. That he wants us to be a people who are overflowing with blessing and generosity to all those around us. Because we have been overwhelmed with the grace of our God. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We love you.
Lord, we just honour you now. Lord, we want to give you glory and praise. Lord, we say, Lord, would you come now, even now in these last few moments, Lord, oh, Spirit of God, Lord, we stand here today as sons of Abraham. We stand here, stand here today, Lord God, as those who have been grafted in to the people that you chose to show mercy on. We're here by grace. Most of us, I'm sure, are Gentiles, non-Jews by nature, and you have brought us in, Lord, into the true Israel. God, we stand here not because we deserve it, but because of your sustaining glory. Lord, I want to pray in these next few weeks, as we look at this great, amazing foundation of faith, and your promises and your covenant to the world, to not, Lord God, treat us as our sins deserve, but to shower mercy upon us. Lord, soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts, Lord. Lord, we don't have to try and summon up reasons, Lord, to love this city. Lord, all we have to do is gaze upon your glory and your mercy towards us. Lord God, come upon us, I pray, in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Shall we stand? We're going to finish with one song. Let's worship our God for the incredible, incredible mercy that he has shown us repeatedly through our lives. We love you, Lord. Beautiful Saviour, perfect in grace, I stand amazed in your presence again. So full of kindness, 